This Global IQ with Jim Falk is with Ambassador Cameron Munter, the CEO and President of the East-West Institute. For over 30 years, Munter was a career diplomat serving in Baghdad, Prague, and Warsaw, as well as Ambassador Serbia. His last post was Ambassador to Pakistan from 2010 to 2012, which, as listeners will remember, included the Abbottabad raid that resulted in the death of Osama bin Laden. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's just start with Osama bin Laden. Where do you stand on the question or whether or not the government of Pakistan was aware that he was living there? I've come down on that question on the side of that the government didn't know. There have been articles written, most notably by Seymour Hirsch in the London Review of Books, claiming not only that they knew that they were part of the raid and that there was an enormous conspiracy and cover-up by the American government and the Pakistani government. I don't buy it. But a more reasonable argument has been, how could the Pakistani government not have known that this person was a mile away from their equivalent of West Point. And I base my conclusion on the intelligence that we took from the house in Abbottabad at the time of the raid. Our SEAL team took an enormous number of documents, thumb drives, computers, etc. And in going through the parts of the material that I've seen, there's no evidence that there was any collusion between the government of Pakistan and Osama bin Laden. So if there were evidence, it seems to me that the United States government would not have a reason to cover up that evidence. In fact, it would probably be leaked because it would be sensational and interesting to people. So even though it seems to many people that it's not credible, I see no evidence that they knew. The final bit of circumstantial evidence that I would add is that on the day after the raid, there was not a coordinated attempt to try to explain by the Pakistanis or to try to control or to do anything there was no plan for the eventuality of how you would deal with the press or the public in the case that he had been found if they had known. They were utterly stunned. Couldn't there have been perhaps one small group or a cell within the government or the ISI that, who would have known? And that's possible. That is possible because that's another point about the Pakistani government, that it's not a, a monolith. There may have been people who knew at a lower level. But I think the leadership of Pakistan, both civilian and military, did not know. You know, the United States and Pakistan seem to see the world through two very different narratives, and we've been unable to get over that. What's the basis for this misunderstanding? Well, again, I think that both countries have wanted to read into the country something that the other country is not. It's a case of two countries being, to put it crudely, two countries being on transmit and not on receive. So the Americans during the Cold War saw the Pakistanis as allies in the Cold War, people who would be good friends. Uh, John Foster Dulles and Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon and others remembered Pakistan as a stalwart ally in the anti-Soviet coalition. And I think because that was important to them, they thought it was as important to the Pakistanis. That's just an example of, of them. I don't think that the Pakistanis were that anti-Soviet. They were very interested in American support, and they felt that was the price. The Pakistanis, on their part, had this notion that America can do many things that it can't. That America, for example, could have prevented the Indians from doing what they did in 1970-71 at the outset of the Bangladesh War, the war that led to the independence of Bangladesh, believing that things don't happen that the Americans don't want to have happen. And so these misapprehensions, these mistaken images, have contributed to a kind of a well-worn groove of prejudices that are very hard to break out of. So my argument has always been, it was my, my argument when I was ambassador, that this bilateral effort of dealing, first of all, state 
to state to solve problems mm-hmm. and bilaterally was sterile and that the way to deal with the problems that Pakistan faces in a way that's useful for the United States long-term interests was to try to think of regional issues not think of Pakistan in a vacuum but think of India Afghanistan even China and also to avoid the idea so getting away from bilateral and then getting away from the idea that government was the only interlocutor for the Americans that we shouldn't have a stronger relationship with society and with other leaders in Pakistan I'm convinced that in the long run I'm actually bullish about Pakistan. I think that there will be an opening of Pakistan to the world, and it'll be because of business, not because of government. And as that happens and other countries get involved, that will help Pakistan reform itself. Reform won't come from within, I don't think, but it will come from the impact of globalization, which has largely passed Pakistan by. Well, let me ask you this about education, because I came across an article a few days ago in The Economist, and it was a quote from the head of the Pakistan Ulama Council, and he said that 60% of the madrasas were not involved in terrorist activities. So the question is, what about the other, what about the other 40%? And who's supporting the madrasas, and does the government, are, are they able to make the changes, the reforms that are needed to modernize, if you wish, the, the curriculum? It's a key issue. The madrasas tend to be limited to areas that are very poor, and their popularity is not necessarily a reflection of how popular the message of a more fundamentalist, salafist, uh, or, or even Wahhabi preaching might be, but the fact that poor people can send their kids to a madrasa and get fed all day and come out knowing the Quran. To me, that's not the same thing. That's a social welfare issue. It's not the same thing as education. They have abdicated because of their government policies, primary and secondary education, and giving children the basic skills they need to compete in the world. The issue is not so much the madrasas. They're important, but they're important because of the failure of public Mm -hmm. education. If they were to create public education that were compulsory and that were competent and that were funded, there would be much less need for the madrasas. Are the Saudis still fueling the The Saudis still pay for the madrasas, yes, many of most of them, yeah. So basically, in my mind, it's a failure of governance as much as it's a pernicious influence of Wahhabi culture from the Saudis. Creating a void that's being filled. There's a void that's being filled by the madrasas, yes. Well, just about, what, 10 days ago, there was a horrible Easter terrorist attack in Lahore. What can you tell us about that? There is a large group of people in Pakistan, not an insignificant group of people, but a large group of people who don't seem to see that they have a future. Many people, when they look at terrorism, they say, if you give poor people jobs, they won't be terrorists. It's interesting, though, that even though I don't want to play fast and loose with statistics, many of the people who end up being suicide bombers are actually people who have an education but don't feel they have a meaning or a future. And so part of this problem is trying to figure out why is it that society is unable to give many of these usually young men no sense of perspective on where they can go. And so that notion of having a future is key to the survival of secular states like Pakistan. I think that Pakistan will continue to have these kinds of problems. It has a strong army, it's better police, it's not a failed state in the sense that, say, Somalia or something is. So there will always be people who can crack down, like the current chief of army staff, Rahil Sharif, has cracked down on these terrorists. But that kind of attack is going to go on as long as you have the distorted economy that doesn't open up to the outside and doesn't give many people, even those who are educated, the sense that they have a future. 
Just last week at the end of March, President Obama hosted what will be his last nuclear security summit. And there's been a great deal of discussion and concern about Pakistan's monitoring of its own nuclear weapons, as well as an effort to miniaturize some of them. Tell us what your thoughts are on this. Well, I think in the short run, we can be very confident that a competent force in Pakistan guards those nuclear weapons. The Americans have done their best to try to make sure that they advise the Pakistanis, and even during the darkest days of 2011, when we were fighting over Raymond Davis or over the Osama bin Laden raid, this cooperation continued. So our cooperation with the Pakistanis convinces us that right now the weapons are generally safe and generally limited to a small number of places. That is, they're not kind of what they would call loose nukes all over the place. The challenge that you mentioned is the challenge of miniaturization. If you have these kinds of weapons that are seen as battlefield tactical weapons, doctrine traditionally has said that those can be used as a response to a conventional attack. They're not strategic weapons. And so there can be a doctrine, for example, that could develop that would give more autonomy to a local leader, to a commander. And you could have a possibility then arising of a Dr. Strangelove situation, a general who thinks, for example, there's been a nuclear strike and that he's authorized to retaliate or wants to retaliate or wants to start. In other words, right now there is central control over these weapons. Tactical nukes very often are linked with doctrines that allow for flexibility for battlefield commanders. And in addition, they could be dispersed. And anytime you disperse nuclear weapons, you're making it more possible that there can be an accident or that there can be uh, diversion, even theft of nuclear weapons. So I think the answer is in the short run, we're fairly confident they're safe. But if they go ahead with miniaturization, there are many greater risks. Well, this is probably one of the important issues that you at the East-West Institute are looking at. Take a minute, and this will be our last question, to tell us about the East-West Institute and, and how our members across the country can learn more about it. We'd be delighted to have friends among your members. We're not really a think tank, even though we're sometimes called that. We're really a network of people. We have offices in New York, in Brussels, in Moscow, and then an outpost in San Francisco working on cybersecurity. What we try to do is our staff and our board and our fellows and our friends try to anticipate problems before they become acute so that we can build relationships with people who have the potential to address them. And then we either convene, you could say above the waterline in public, we convene people to talk about issues, or below the waterline in back channels, so-called track two discussions, mm -hmm. where we allow people to then come to find common ground. We don't try to dictate what the solution is, but we do try to understand enough about the situation to allow people to do that. We're entirely privately funded, so we try to have this kind of independence that allows us to be honest brokers with people. So when we take the Russians, we sit them down with the Americans, or when we take the Saudis and sit them down with the Iranians, we're not telling them, here's what you must do. Here is who must win and who must lose. It's not litigation. It's can you find common ground? And if there are issues that we think are important, can you contribute to coming to a resolution of the conflict before it gets out of hand? We like having friends around the country, not only because it's our donor base, but also because we find that this is a kind of an international diplomacy which should not and cannot be limited to people in government. So we find that private business, academics, NGOs and others 
are effective workers in trying to address these issues, whether it's climate change and the relationship of China to India, or whether it's a problem in the South China Sea, or whether it's a question of the future of military-to-military relations between NATO and Russia. The website is www.eastwest.ngo. Go to the website. We have publications that we, we send out. But I think if you go to www.eastwestngo and look us up, that's where you should start. Uh, my guest today has been Ambassador Cameron Munter, and you've been listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, a podcast produced by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with the World Affairs Councils of America. Thanks for listening.